Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Dr. Samuel Foster, co-organizer for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. This series is part of the Institute of Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organized by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the Bassis Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeast Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com. In this episode, we're joined by Rock Steger, Associate Professor at the University of Ljubljana and a historian of the Habsburg Empire, the First World War, and nationalism in the Balkans and Central Europe to discuss the history of minority relations and civil administration in what is today Slovenia. We'll be focusing especially on, the air, on this area's final years as part of Austro-Hungary and the situation that immediately followed its union with the Kingdom of Yugoslavia at the end of 1918. Rock, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of history? Hi, uh, you've already mentioned that I'm an associate professor of history at the University of Ljubljana uh, and that I'm a Habsburg historian. And basically most of my research is really focused on uh, the Habsburg era and especially on the history of nationalism within the Habsburg empire. Uh, this is what I've been doing for a while now, and most of my publications are on that topic. But I've also been doing, as a side project, in a way, uh, some uh, World War I uh, history, mostly focusing on soldiers' experience uh, during the war. Again, uh, focusing on the Habsburg Empire and on the Habsburg soldier experience. And as I was working on, on that topic, I came across some of the sources uh, that uh, suggested that the prevailing narrative about the post-imperial era, the narrative that still prevails in the Slovene historiography, uh, lacks some nuance, uh, let me put it like that, that it needs to be uh, re-evaluated, that it needs to be revisited, that we need to look at these post-imperial years uh, from new perspectives and using new sources as well. And as the centenary of World War I was coming to a close in 2018, it seemed to me that everybody was basically moving into this post-imperial uh, era, and there was a lot of uh, calls all of a sudden for conferences, workshops, and I pragmatically decided that I should do something about this, that I should actually use the sources that I've gathered while I was working on World War I history. Uh, and I, 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 then I applied for a, set, for a few conferences and a few publications eventually came out of that. So I, I kind of stumbled into post-imperial uh, history 
into this historiography of post-imperial transition uh, in a way, but it's been a fascinating experience and I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. So I'm currently uh, actually uh, focusing on this uh, era and on this topic uh, the last few years. So the Habsburg history has been uh, pushed to, to the side a bit. Just for the benefit of our listeners, where is Slovenia? Who were the major ethnic and national groupings in 1918? And what had been the territory's political and social status within Austro-Hungary prior to the First World War? Yes, uh, Slovenia is an independent state since 1991 and has been a federal republic in Yugoslavia since 1945. Uh, it is situated between Italy, Austria, Hungary and Croatia, so it's a part of Central and Southeastern Europe or basically borders both or yeah, well, yeah, uh, there, there are some discussions that the, uh, the borders of the Balkans run through uh, Ljubljana, the capital of Slovenia. Uh, but we know uh, that those borders are actually very hard to define. So this is another debate altogether. Anyways, um, before 1918, Slovenia as such as, uh, did not exist. It did not exist as an administrative unit, except, of course, in the imagination of Slovene nationalists. Uh, the territories that they claimed for themselves within the Habsburg Empire were parts of several uh, Austrian uh, crown lands. Uh, the Austrian littoral, Carniola, Carinthia, and Styria. And there was a tiny bit of territory that Slovene nationalists sometimes claimed for themselves in the other part of the uh, Habsburg Empire in the other part of Austria-Hungary, that is in, in Hungary itself. Um, but again, uh, these lands were existed as Slovenia uh, only in the imagination of Slovene nationalists. They claimed since 1848, this was basically the mainstay of uh, Slovene national program, uh, they claimed a united Slovenia. They wanted to have a separate uh, province within the Habsburg Empire, uh, a separate province called uh, Slovenia, but they, ne they never uh, came close to realizing uh, that the crown lands uh, remained uh, as separate uh, administrative units. So there was no uh, Slovenia in that area. Uh, of course, this, this entire development can be situated within this larger debates about uh, reform in the Habsburg Empire where several uh, different groups um, proposed uh, federalization of the empire based on national groups. But of course, that never happened uh, on the imperial level as well. So uh, Slovenia remained just a, a pigment of, of nationalist imagination for the most part. Although uh, it has to be said, the empire, of course, recognized Slovenes as a separate nation. Uh, they, uh, the empire recognized the Slovene language as one of the offic its official languages. So it was used in administration, it was used in education. Um, and Slovenes, again, were recognized, uh, Slovene speakers were recognized as one of the groups uh, within the empire that had uh, its rights, that had the right to use its own language uh, for the most part. Uh, but of course, 
uh, if we look at this imagined Slovenia before 1918, uh, it was not just Slovene speakers who lived there. There was a sizable uh, German speaking community, uh, mostly in urban areas, but not only in urban areas. Uh, in the literal, uh, of course, there was a large Italian speaking community, especially in Trieste, which the Slovenes nationalists claimed for, for themselves, although it had a Ital an Italian speaking uh, majority. And this easternmost part that was a part of Hungary had a sizable Hungarian uh, speaking uh, community. There was Roma, of course, as well, but this was a rather small, numerically speaking, a rather small group, and it wasn't uh, active in politics. It did not have its own uh, nationalist movement, so it was mostly neglected when it came to politics, when it came to political debates, when it came uh, to visions of future. And did the Great War itself precipitate any significant changes in how these Slovene-dominated territories were administered? Well, uh, the, the, the start of the war brought huge change to the empire, to Austria-Hungary, but mostly actually to, the, to its Austrian uh, part, to, to so-called Cisleitania. Whereas in Hungary, the parliament uh, still functioned and the government still was responsible to the parliament. Uh, the freedom of the press uh, was still in force. In the Austrian part, uh, the government basically dissolved the parliament um, and introduced what we could call semi-authoritarian rule uh, in the Austrian part of the empire. The freedom of, of the press was severely curtailed. Uh, some laws uh, were uh, put in force that uh, basically curtailed several uh, additional civil liberties. People were uh, being sent to jail or interned if there was not enough uh, evidence to, 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 um, con uh, to sentence them uh, to uh, jail. Uh, and the army increasingly played a role in the administration of uh, the Austrian part of the uh, empire. So civilians were to a large degree pushed to the side, especially in those areas that were, that were close to the front. Uh, there the army basically uh, ruled on its own and it ruled uh, often, uh, its rule was quite brutal. Um, the, the army, the officers sought Treason that it saw, they, they saw prisoners everywhere, and there were actually executions uh, of civilians suspected of being uh, spies. This, there was this so called spy craze. So it was a, a rather brutal uh, period, especially in the eastern part of the, uh, of, the of the empire in Galicia, where the, the Eastern Front was, and of course in the southeast. Uh, Bosnia, uh, parts of Croatia, where uh, which lay along the, the Serbian border, the Serbian front. Uh, one of the reasons why this happened is that, of course, as the army mobilized, uh, it also mobilized reservists. It, uh, it mobilized a lot of reserve officers. And the, 
when we are talking about the army in 1914 and afterwards, we are basically talking about a huge number of civilians being mobilized. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of them were, in, uh, as civilians, they were previously already nationalists. And if you look at the numbers, uh, statistically speaking, some of them or many of them were German nationalists. Uh, and this played a role uh, in the in these so-called Slovene lands. You previously had, um, on, on the political level mostly, you had this so-called nationality conflict between the Slovene and, and the German nationalists. And now all of a sudden uh, you have these German nationalists in the army as reserve officers who can use their uh, role uh, to send their uh, their uh, political uh, well uh, enemies if we could put it like that uh, to jail uh, and this really did happen uh, but the situation started to change first in 1915 when there was uh, when Italy entered the war uh, and a new front opened. Then the army itself, uh, but also the civilian authorities started uh, to look for allies in a way. And the Slovene population uh, looked as one of those potential allies. That was the idea that you could motivate them to fight against Italy because of course the, the famous or infamous infamous London agreement, uh, which promised uh, huge swaths of territory to Italy uh, in exchange for its entry in, into the war. And of course, some of these territories were territories that the Slovene nationalists saw as theirs. So the, the, the idea was that you could basically do a deal with the Slovenes, that you could uh, motivate them to fight uh, the Italians, uh, which really did happen. Uh, and because of that, the army started uh, looking at this uh, regime that was put in force in 1914, that was put in force after the outbreak of the war. And some of the, these policies, policies were uh, actually changed. This brutality was toned down uh, somewhat. Uh, but not only because of that, the other reason was that uh, some of the civilian uh, civilians, some of the officials started telling the government and the army that this is not a good way to, to administer uh, the, the state, that this is going actually, that this is actually counterproductive, that this is going to produce unwanted results. Um, so this brutality was slowly being toned down uh, even before uh, the Italian entering into the war. And then uh, the big change uh, came after the death of Francis Joseph in 1916. Um, the new emperor uh, made significant changes. Uh, most of these, most of the most oppressive measures were uh, were abolished, uh, the parliament was convened again, uh, and as the parliament reconvened, uh, parliamentarians, MPs started asking questions and there were several uh, commissions of inquiry actually that looked into this uh, 
regime, this semi-authoritarian semi rule uh, after 1914, and found out some of the things that I, I already mentioned. For example, that these reserve officers, some of them uh, nationalists, abused their positions uh, to settle scores in a way. And um, what were the immediate post-war consequences um, for Slovenia's minorities following the actual collapse of Habsburg authority in the autumn of 1918? I'm thinking especially of this German-speaking minority group. Yeah, uh, I already mentioned that Slovene nationalists were demanding this Slo united Slovenia ever since 1848, but they always imagined it, or most of them at least, imagined this Slovenia within the Habsburg Empire. They wanted to reform the Habsburg Empire, not destroy it. But this starts to change during World War I. Part of the reason for this change were uh, the things I was just talking about, this semi-authoritarian rule that changed the atmosphere. Uh, all of a sudden, it appeared to the to, to Slovene nationalists that they were somehow not uh, really partners in this uh, state, that they, they are not um, equal partners. Uh, so they start looking for alternatives. Uh, and especially in 1917 and then uh, in the early part of 1918, as it became increasingly clear that the Habsburg Empire is going to lose the war, and that the Entente has now decided to dismember the empire, which was not one of their goals as the war started. It was still not their goal uh, at the beginning of 1918. But as the summer came in, it became increasingly clear that the Habsburg Empire will not survive the war. That's why they start looking, increasingly start looking uh, for other solutions. And one of them was, of course, the idea of uh, a Yugoslav, South Slav nation state. And this is what happens in the autumn of 1918. They proclaim for, uh, first, uh, in October, on October 29th, they proclaimed the independence of the state of Slovenes, Croats, and Serbs, which comprised only those provinces of the Habsburg Empire where the South Slavs lived. Uh, but uh, this state was never internationally recognized, uh, and it was unable to control most of its territories. Uh, the situation was basically untenable. Uh, so they quickly unified with Serbia that happened on December the 1st, 1918. So from then on, we have the state that is officially called the Kingdom of Serbs, uh, Croats and Slovenes until 1929. Uh, and the Slovene and the Croat and the Serb nationalists who founded this state saw it as a South Slav nation state. Uh, and of course, this had consequences for the, uh, for the, uh, for those uh, inhabitants, for, for those citizens actually, who were not seen as uh, South Slavs, as Yugoslavs. Uh, it was pretty clear from the very beginning that they will be tolerated at best. Uh, they, became minorities. This is actually a new term that only starts uh, 
being used uh, after 1918. Uh, and, and, and the Germans, the Hungarians, the Italians, uh, and several other uh, smaller groups across uh, Yugoslavia now became minorities, which were, as I've said, tolerated at best. There were, of course, international agreements that uh, secured some of their rights. Uh, which did not always help that much in practice, but there was some uh, laws and agreements that protected their rights. Uh, but on the other hand, you have a series of legislative and practical measures from the very beginning, basically, uh, aimed at homogenizing the population. Uh, on the one hand, uh, the nationalists always suspected that large parts of these minority populations, people who used German language or identified as Germans were not proper Germans, quote unquote, that they were actually originally of Slovene, uh, people of Slovene descent who were forcibly uh, Germanized by the previous oppressive uh, Habsburg government, quote unquote, of course. Uh, and the idea was that they will come back uh, to the fold, basically, that they will uh, eventually recognize that they are actually Slovenes or Croats, uh, that they are actually uh, Yugoslavs, uh, and that they will cease using these uh, other languages, German or Hungarian, that they will cease identifying as Germans or Hungarians uh, and become, become full-fledged uh, Yugoslavs. Uh, uh, there was, of course, also measures uh, aimed at those people that the, the authorities, that the nationalists didn't see as, as lost members of, of the nation. Uh, those, they targeted with several measures, and basically the goal was to push them out, uh, to make, make them leave uh, the country uh, this way or the other. So the whole idea is, is as it often happens with nationalists, that this nation state um, should include all the members of the nation, the Yugoslav nation, and nobody else. So uh, Yugoslavia after 19 always functioned as a nationalizing state. So trying to homogenize population as much as possible. So just turning then to your 2020 article, which um, where you've sort of covers where you cover this topic in more detail, um, you describe the changes that occur at a more sort of local administrative level um, during this early post imperial transitional phase as having effectively amounted to a series of purges. Now, this is a term that today carries very violent and anti-democratic associations, particularly we tend to think of what takes place in the 1930s in the Soviet Union under Stalin. Thinking about it, but thinking, going back to sort of 1918 and these early years then, what sort of rationale or narrative do you think these new nationalist authorities um, were using to justify their aggressive stance, particularly against the German speakers? And alongside that, what kind of national ideological lens do you think they um, presented this through? Was it, say, um, sort of Slovi a sort of localized Slovene one or wider Yugoslavia one, or maybe even a combination of both? It certainly was a combination of both. 
because for a long time, ever since Slovene uh, nationalism came into existence, Slovene nationalism and Yugoslav nationalism were in a way inseparable. Uh, there was always the idea that being Slovene was a precondition of being a Yugoslav. So you first have to be a Slovene, but then at the same time, you are a Yugoslav as well. This was also the idea across Yugoslavia that most nationalists shared at that particular moment. So this is a nation, a Yugoslav nation, but it has three separate tribes, as you well know, uh, Slovenes, uh, Croats, and Serbs. So you are not, you, you cannot simply be a Yugoslav. You basically have to, I, I am simplifying here uh, quite a lot, uh, but you simply have to be a Slovene, a Croat, or a Serb first. And by being a Slovene, a Croat, or a Serb, then you are already at the same time uh, a Yugoslav. So this was uh, the, 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 the things that were happening in 1918 and later on were informed by this uh, thinking. Later on, st things start to change. There was a move toward this uh, integral Yugoslavism, as it's uh, often called, where you don't have this uh, separate identities that all together comprise this Yugoslav uh, identity, and you only have the Yugoslav identity. But th this was not the case uh, at the very beginning in 1918-1919. I mean, some uh, nationalists already suggested that this should be the way forward, but this was a minority opinion, at least in Slovenia it was. Uh, so moving back to these purges, uh, as I call them, and they were I wouldn't say necessarily violent, but they were certainly anti-democratic. Um, because actually, although some of this was done uh, in a legal way, uh, there was this authoritarian tinge to it uh, from the very uh, beginning. Anyways. Um, the rationale that, that was behind all these moves, uh, the, the sacking of, of uh, hundreds of officials and also teachers and others who were categorized by the, the new authorities, by the new Slovene Yugoslav authorities as foreigners, as in a national sense, because they were citizens actually of Yugoslavia. So they were categorized as Germans and uh, or uh, uh, Hungarians as non-Yugoslavs uh, and they were being targeted because the idea was that the nation state must have a national administration, that the na a national education. Uh, so schools uh, have to educate these kids in a national sense. They have to uh, make Yugoslavs out of uh, these pupils. And this, of course, can be only done by uh, proper Yugoslav uh, teachers. Uh, and these people need to be administered by uh, officials belonging to their own uh, nation. There was one additional rationale, or better said, probably uh, excuse uh, that they used. Uh, they, were, they, they often presented, the new administration often presented Germans and later uh, also uh, Hungarians as former oppressors. 
so this purge uh, that was introduced uh, in 1918 already was uh, being presented as a as a kind of liberation you know so uh, we are getting rid of those people who were oppressing the, us for centuries of course as the story went um, and we are finally delivering a national administration to our people who deserve to be governed by their own people so then moving just beyond um what you've initially what you've described as being a well what we should probably consider as being a rather, still a rather elite administrative sphere. Um, what were these, for want of a better term, purges, repercussions for the wider um, non-Slovenian German community? Um, I'm thinking particularly of those who weren't actually involved in politics. Uh, yeah, I mean, if we stay with the administrative uh, structures first, uh, it has to be said that these people were not only sacked, that they didn't only lose their jobs, but some of them had to leave their apartments as well. So they were targeted in various uh, ways. But they, the officials were not the only ones who were targeted. Uh, as I've already mentioned, the idea was to nationalize everything. Uh, everything has to be uh, Yugoslav. So uh, not just the administration, but the schools, the cultural institutions, the civil society, as well as uh, the media. Uh, one of the first things that happens in Ljubljana is that um, uh, the semi-official daily newspaper of the previous administration, Leibacher Zeitung, which was published in German, uh, ceased its publication on, on the very next day. Uh, after the uh, declaration of uh, uh, independence. And it, similar things were happening uh, elsewhere uh, in other towns uh, as well. Um, but if we look at these several areas that I've already mentions, uh, mentioned, uh, education, for example, uh, several schools uh, that were now uh, categorized as minority schools. So. The, this in Slovenia, this predominantly means uh, schools for the German-speaking uh, pupils were simply closed. Uh, there was a lot of pressure being put on, on parents to enroll their kids into Slovene classes, into Slovene schools, and the new uh, administration had rules about uh, these minority schools that stipulated that you have to have a certain number of kids enrolled in those schools uh, in order for them to keep um, functioning, to keep uh, existing. And of course, uh, as it, because of this pressure, uh, some schools simply didn't have enough pupils anymore, so, so they were closed. Uh, and it has to be stressed, this was not a, uh, primarily these were not primarily voluntary decisions by, by the parents. Some of them changed their mind. They, uh, they recognized that the situations had, uh, situation has changed, that Slovene is now all of a sudden more useful than it previously was. The German perhaps might not be as useful as it previously was. So they, they enrolled their kids um, into Slovene uh, speaking schools. But a lot of it was actually pressure by the by the local nationalists, but by the government as well. So uh, this is, is one of the things uh, that happened. Uh, teachers were also uh, fired. Teachers teaching in those uh, German 
language schools or teachers categorized as Germans were fired uh, in their hundreds. Um, and that was, wasn't all that was happening. And this is something that also continued uh, throughout the interwar period, basically. All these minority schools, although the, there were international agreements and there were Yugoslav laws that uh, ensured their uh, continued existence, but in practice, there was always pressure put being put on these uh, parents, on these kids also, uh, not to uh, enroll into a German-speaking or a Hungarian-speaking uh, school uh, for that matter. Uh, but that, that was not the entire story. Institutions of civil society were also put under pressure. Uh, several uh, societies, clubs were dissolved pretty quickly after uh, independence was uh, proclaimed. Uh, some of them were, as they called it, nationalized. So they were transformed, uh, forcibly transformed into Slovenian institution. The, the rather famous Philharmonische uh, Gesellschaft from Ljubljana was basically uh, dissolved and, and um, uh, uh, it's uh, its archives, its its buildings, all its uh, all that it accumulated through its exist throughout its existence, was basically uh, given to a competing Slovene institution. The 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 theater, the, the German speaking theater, uh, drama theater in Ljubljana was also basically um, stopped I mean, uh, stopped functioning pretty quickly because it, it was it couldn't anymore and and several other institutions that some of them existed for not only for decades but some of them actually existed for centuries uh, simply could not uh, function anymore they were either dissolved or unable to to work further uh, there was also changes in, in politics on the local, especially on the local level, where, for example, uh, in this Slovene part of Yugoslavia, several hundred municipal councils were dissolved. The government decided that this municipal council is illoyal, that it has too many German councillors, that it has a German minority, so it was simply dissolved. Uh, mayors, for example, who were categorized as German or uh, uh, as illoyal were replaced by government commissars. So you have this uh, rather forceful uh, politics, again, aimed at nationalizing the, uh, not just the population, but basically the, 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 the structures uh, that kept the state going. Uh, furthermore, you have, you had plans for forced immigration. I already mentioned that this homogenization was one of the policies uh, of, the, of the Yugoslav state. Uh, and if you look at Slovenia, you have uh, reports uh, from district captains from the local level uh, with long lists of those who were categorized as citizens of an enemy state. Uh, but in practice, that meant mostly Germans. Some of them actually were Yugoslav citizens, not Austrian or German uh, citizens. And the plan was uh, 
to basically force them across the border. It never came to that, uh, but the plans were being made, which is important to know. Uh, on the other hand, it has to be said that there were, uh, despite all that I've already uh, described, a lot of continuities, uh, not just when it comes to the legal and administrative framework, which remained uh, Austrian for in some in some instances for decades uh, to come um, and virtually unchanged uh, but also if we look at the administration the, the schools and and other institutions you see that for example uh, some of the people categorized as germans were not fired uh, because they were needed so you 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 have on on one hand you have this ideological zeal but on the other hand, you have this pragmatic approach. Uh, one of the ministers of the national government in Ljubljana acknowledged that the judiciary would have simply collapsed if they had fired all the supposed Germans immediately after independence. So they kept them uh, in their posts because they, they most of all, of course, needed uh, for the state to, to, to function. Uh, some of those officials that were first fired as Germans uh, were then immediately basically rehired because they again needed uh, policemen, they needed judges, they needed prison wardens, they, they needed those people. And in some parts of this new state, you didn't have anybody else but those people that you saw as foreigners, as potential enemies. Uh, but they were also, on the other hand, capable people that were well-educated, that, that knew how uh, to work in a judiciary, in an administration, so you needed them. And so on the one hand, you have these breaks, sometimes quite uh, radical breaks, and on the other, you have these continuities uh, that go on uh, in some cases for, for decades. How did these changes affect Slovenia's non-German minorities, such as Italians? Um, were there any um, were there any other groups that were targeted as harshly during this, or what you obviously described, very turbulent political period? I already mentioned that there was Roma uh, in the territory that was now included in Yugoslavia, but this was uh, a group that was basically uh, Neglected uh, when we uh, when we come to this uh, to, to to the to, to these policies we were just talking about. I mean, there were no Roma uh, working in the administration or, or no Roma teachers, as it were. So they were not especially targeted. This this is a special story that still needs to be told. Uh, but if you look at the other uh, groups that were that now all of a sudden became uh, minorities, the the other one that is besides the Germans that is important that that was sizable uh, were the Hungarians actually after 1919 because you had of course a lot of uh, Italian speakers in the literal but the literal was uh, occupied in 1918 by Italy and. Uh, was then then became a part officially became a part of the Italian kingdom after the Treaty of Rapallo, uh, which uh, uh, fixed this uh, new border between uh, the Yugoslav and the Italian state. So you don't have a sizable uh, Italian-speaking minority 
in uh, the Slovene part of Yugoslavia, uh, you do have uh, an Italian-speaking minority in the Croatian literal, but this is, uh, and, and similar things were happening there, but this is a different story in a way. So if you just look at, if you are just looking at Slovenia, you have the German-speaking minority, which is rather large. Uh, and then you have uh, the Hungarians after 1919, um, uh, because uh, Yugoslavia only occupied this easternmost part of uh, present-day Slovenia, which is now called Prekmurje, and which was previously a part of Hungary in 1919, when Yugoslavia uh, intervened in Hungary along with uh, Romania and uh, other states um, against the Belakun, uh, the communist regime of, of uh, Hungary. And in return, basically, Yugoslavia got this uh, part of, of, of Hungary. And there were several thousand uh, Hungarian speakers uh, living there. Um, a lot of these uh, administrative posts uh, were uh, occupied by, by, by um, um, Hungarian speakers, Hungarian speaking teachers were numerous, and basically uh, the new authorities, when they occupied this uh, region, which was then later uh, formally given to uh, Yugoslavia by the peace treaty, uh, took almost identical steps to the ones I described previously. Uh, so they would, they, they fired the uh, officials that were categorized as Hungarian, kept some because they needed them. They started looking at the schools and started firing uh, teachers, uh, but again, keeping some, mostly those that they saw as potential uh, Slovenes and Yugoslavs, people who were quote unquote previously forcibly assimilated into the Hungarian nation and could now return uh, into the fold. Uh, institutions again were targeted, uh, dissolved, nationalized. So basically what we see in, in, in this region in Prekmuria after 1919 is pretty similar to what we saw uh, in the rest of uh, Slovenia and Yugoslavia uh, after uh, October uh, 1918, after independence had been proclaimed. Um, again, this group uh, had some rights, uh, some schools uh, in Hungarian language uh, still uh, functioned. Uh, there were international treaties that uh, guaranteed some of their rights, but there was always pressure being put on these people. Uh, and if you see at the statistics, you see the numbers uh, declining rather rapidly uh, after 1918 and after 1919 of Germans and Hungarians uh, as well. Uh, some of that was actually assimilation or at least statistical assimilation. So people, uh, when, when it came to the census, they would say that they identify as Slovenes or Yugoslavs rather than uh, Germans or Hungarians. Um, but some of that, that was actually peop uh, people leaving, uh, Hungarian speakers or German speakers leaving for Austria and for uh, Hungary uh, because uh, for all sorts of reasons, uh, those that I described, 
and several uh, more, they decided that they simply have no future in this uh, Yugoslav state. And finally, where can people go to learn more about this topic? I've mentioned that this post-imperial transition is a, how should I put this, a hot topic uh, the last few years. And there is a lot of uh, literature on it. Uh, even if we just look at the, uh, this post-Habsburg uh, space, uh, there are names uh, I'll, I'll mention. I, I will surely forget some uh, more. I hope people don't hold this against me. Uh, but uh, for example, if you look uh, at the whole empire, but especially its Hungarian part, uh, you have Gabor Egri, a historian from Budapest, who has an ERC project on exactly this topic, on post-imperial transitions on the local level. And he and his uh, group have, have published a number of, of chapters, um, articles on uh, this post-imperial tra transition from several perspectives, not just about the things I was uh, talking about, not just about the purges and the breaks, but also about continuities. Uh, then uh, if you look at, uh, uh, if you look further at uh, Czechoslovakia or former Bohemian lands, uh, you have several publications by Rudolf Kuchera and Ota Konrad, some of them uh, in English as well. Uh, they look at the Bohemian lands, but also uh, at the larger region, not just at Czechoslovakia. They, in their latest book, they also look at uh, uh, Austria and, and uh, actually South Tyrol as well, which became a part of, of Italy after the war. Uh, then you have, for example, Marco Bresciani, who has been working on Trieste in, in this post-imperial, post-World War I uh, era, uh, looking at the, at the birth uh, of fascism in this region and at the larger uh, developments that influenced the, the birth of a special breed of fascism uh, in this region. And all of this he's doing in this post-imperial uh, framework. Then you have, uh, for example, a brilliant book uh, by Dominique Reil uh, on Fiume uh, after uh, the war. Uh, this city-state that existed for a while um, and uh, that is best known for uh, the escapades of Gabriele D'Annunzio uh, immediately after the war, but uh, Dominique does not look at that. She looks at, at, at how the people experience this, uh, this uh, transition from one empire into a short-lived city-state and then into uh, another kingdom, the kingdom of uh, Italy. Uh, there's also, for example, uh, interesting work by Jakub Benesch on green cadres and the rural unrest in some of these post-Habsburg uh, post uh, regions. Uh, and this is an extremely uh, important topic, I feel, because uh, uh, one of the things I have been missing from this existing, uh, often slightly nationalist narratives about the post-imperial transition was this, uh, was the other revolution, if you put it like that. This is the social revolution that was, of course, uh, always 
somehow in the air, but the, the possibility of a revolution was always there. Uh, I mean, not, not just the possibility, if you look at Hungary, there was a proper Bolshevik uh, revolution there. If you look at Munich uh, for a short while, you have a Bolshevik, uh, a Soviet state there for a while. So this, this was something that was happening across the region. Uh, and there is some research on that, but I, I think that, 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 there's, that more is needed. And finally, and I left a lot out, uh, I surely have, uh, if we go back to, to the topic we started with, this is the administration in transition. There's a great uh, volume uh, edited by uh, Peter Becker and Teresa Garstenauer and a few others with a brilliant title, Hofrats Demerung, uh, that looks at the officials in the post-Habsburg uh, states in this immediate post-World War I uh, era uh, from several perspectives. It has several interesting chapters that look basically at continuities, but also at breaks uh, from uh, different perspectives. And as I've said, it includes most of the former uh, Habsburg land. So there is a lot one can uh, read and one should uh, if, if one is interested in these topics, uh, but there's also a lot that still needs to be done. Rob Stierger, thank you very, very much.